Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most radical writers you've never heard of, Lillian Smith, a writer, civil rights activist, and general bomb thrower, as Tracy Thompson describes her in Southern Cassandra, an essay in our most recent issue. In case you missed that one, we've got a link in the show notes, but here's a brief summary of Lillian Smith's life. Born in 1897, she grew up among what she called the best people, the wealthy Southern aristocracy. But she betrayed every value of her social class until the day she died in 1966. She went from writing a 1944 novel about a doomed interracial love affair to diving into civil rights activism, pushing for total, immediate desegregation in an era where that made most white people balk. She drew a straight, damning line between race and sex, arguing that there was no way to untangle the rationale of Jim Crow from the supposed need to protect the purity of white women. She was also a lesbian, and with her partner Paula Snelling, ran a progressive camp for girls in the Georgia mountains that was probably a little bit more than those girls' parents bargained for. Despite her initial fame and success, though, nobody really listened to Lillian Smith, and As Tracy Thompson argues, maybe if we had, we'd be just a little bit better off. Fewer black men and kids shot by police, less white supremacy, less repression, less hate. Sort of the way that Troy would have been better off if they'd listened to their Cassandra. Tracy Thompson joins us in the studio to give Lillian Smith a little bit of her voice back. Thanks for talking to me, Tracy. Well, thank you for inviting me. Of course. So first of all, why have I never heard of her? Well, why you've never heard of her is a complicated question, but Lillian Smith started out as a novelist, and she wrote this book called Strange Fruit, which was about an interracial love affair in South Georgia. And because of that, and because of some, I guess you would say, titillating details in the book. Uh, It mentioned a lesbian love affair, and it had the F word. And so the book got to be famous kind of for all the wrong reasons. Um, And it was banned from the U.S. mail, and there was all kinds of controversy around it, um, which kind of distracted from her artistic aims. But she wrote very forthrightly about the fact that 
a white man and a black woman could love each other as two equal human beings. And and that was pretty incendiary in itself in that time. This was in the late 1940s. And then after that, she wrote Killers of the Dream, which was kind of a memoir and an account of her coming to terms with her perceptions of Jim Crow and her big insight, which was that rigid racial segregation hurt white people in addition to hurting black people. Obviously, it hurt black people more in in purely economic terms, but it inflicted a psychic wound on white people. And she was the first person I know who used the term white privilege decades before anybody began really discussing that term. So beyond her memoir, how did she get involved in the activism of her day? How did she shift from these reflections into, I guess, wading into the fight? Well, she was using her platform to argue very assertively that segregation just had to go. And this was before Brown versus Board of Education, as well as after. Um, And that made her just a radical, radical leftist for her day. The so-called Southern liberals of her day, like Ralph McGill and Hodding Carter, were not by any means ready to accept instant desegregation of schools or public accommodations. They were all for taking it slow. Uh, You may remember the Nina Simone song, Mississippi Goddamn, where she talks about go slow, go slow, so scornfully. Um, That's what she was talking about. So I'm not sure exactly how she was talking about desegregation, and there was so much social tumult uh, around this whole issue bubbling up with the Montgomery bus boycott that started in December 1955, that I think she just took it on herself to start corresponding with these people. And by then, she was somewhat of a public figure. So it kind of came naturally to her to just assume that she could approach them. It sounds weird to us now, but at the time, Martin Luther King was fairly obscure and Lillian Smith was famous. Yeah, that's hard to imagine yeah. now in 2019. Right. I mean, how was she received by the civil rights movement, by obscure MLK in his Birmingham jail cell or Julian Bond? Well, she was very friendly with Martin Luther King. I, I don't know the details of their friendship or how often they got together. She mentioned something in her letters about giving him a ride somewhere and how That was a little bit of a dicey proposition, a white woman driving a black man around in a car. She certainly considered them social equals. She had various civil rights figures. I don't know that Martin Luther King specifically came up to her North Georgia camp, but she was certainly on friendly speaking terms with most of the leading civil rights figures of her day. At the same time, she kind of held herself aloof from them. Um, She was a little bit of a contrarian. She was a loner, I guess. She never really signed on to things like the Southern Regional Council or these big group efforts. There was always something going on that didn't quite set right with her. Um, Usually it was because she was so uncompromising about the integration issue. She just didn't see any need 
to go slow to stop or consider or do anything except just instantly throw open the doors. And she didn't have much patience with people who who wanted to discuss nuance and schedules and and stuff like that. She was also vehemently anti-communist. And if she had any suspicion of communist influence with an organization, as I think she did later on with some of the civil rights groups, um, she disassociated herself from it. She was um, very much a creature of her time when it came to anti-communism. You know, this was the McCarthy era, along mm-hmm. with everything else. Yeah, that's so interesting that she, in a lot of ways she really was a radical leftist, but this particular brand of... Not that far left. <laughs> yeah, not that far. Right. right. Um, do you think that there's an element, too, in her character of being kind of a white savior? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think she had that complex in a way. I She probably would have vehemently denied it. Of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely. Um, there's that letter where she, she writes to some friend in Albany trying to get Martin Luther King out of jail. And and at the time, for reasons of his own, he didn't even want to be bailed out of jail. And she took it on herself to, you know, do a little behind-the-scenes string-pulling, and somebody posted his bail. And, yeah, I, I think there was definitely an element of that. But in her defense, it's kind of hard to envision a way in which she wouldn't have suffered from that. She was a person of her time. We're all people of our time, you know? Right. It's different to do that today versus yeah. in 1950-something. Right. Right. She was flawed, as yeah. you mentioned in the essay. And, you know, there's there's no way to really know how much of her squashed reputation today has to do with her gender or that she was a lesbian or even her politics. But, I mean, some of it might have to do with her actual failings. So where do you see her coming up short? Actually, I don't think it has to do with her actual failings. She was never taken to task for what I see as her actual failings. I think her reputation was trashed at the time pretty much because of her gender and because of her sexuality, which was kind of an open secret. Everybody knew at the time that she lived with Paula Snelling. But I think people like Jack Tarver and Hodding Carter really couldn't stand her, mainly because she was a woman, and she dared to speak to them as an equal, and they just had real trouble taking her seriously. When people in New York wanted to get the quote-unquote Southern point of view, they went to men. They went to male newspaper editors. Um, They didn't ask Flannery O'Connor for the most part. They didn't ask Lillian Smith or Virginia Durr. They talked to guys because that's just who ran the world. And so she just had an awful lot of trouble being heard. I mean, the the collection of her letters is called How Am I to Be Heard? And I can just imagine how incredibly frustrating it was for her to have so much to say and know where to say it and no one ready to listen to her. Yeah, I mean... Thinking back to her, the title of her collection of letters about being heard, I mean, maybe if she had actually been heard, then people would have dug in a little bit deeper into her arguments. Yeah, nobody, well, there were a couple of people who noticed um, at the time 
I think Malcolm Cowley kind of picked up on this. Um, but basically, I think her biggest flaw was that she was blind to her own elitism. Her idea was that the best people of the South, upper-class people, and she referred over and over to to folks in these terms, um, would help set white Southerners straight and set a good example and teach the rednecks how to behave. She didn't use the term rednecks, but it was implied everywhere in what she said. And that just really rubs me the wrong way. I mean, I kind of consider myself a sixth-generation redneck. Um, my folks are Southerners from way back. Uh, I think I have a great-great-great-grandfather who landed in Alabama and in the early 1800s. Um, none of us have ever been wealthy and I remember as a child growing up in Atlanta in the 60s, some of the people who were the most quote-unquote liberal for their day paid no price for that. Their kids went to private schools. Their country club pools stayed open. Um, whereas people on my side of town were experiencing all kinds of real estate upheaval. I mean, that's I lived where white flight was happening. And we dealt with that sort of thing. Um, goes without saying, white flight was a deplorable phenomenon. But the decline in property values was a real thing. And the people who were preaching at us to be more liberal were not dealing with any of that stuff. So there's a lot of hypocrisy there uh, that I don't think she was even remotely conscious of. Right. A lot of those people didn't really have to put anything on the line for it, as you right. said. Like, their country clubs didn't have black people in them to begin with. Right. Um, or and, Jews, for or, that matter. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and plus, it erases a whole history that, I mean, all of America has kind of forgotten of low-income, working-class white solidarity with black people. That's right. In Reconstruction and after. Right. I mean, even Tom Watson, the the incredible racist and anti-Catholic newspaper editor of Infamy started out as a progressive who addressed integrated audiences in the 1890s, telling them you are kept separate, that you might be separately fleeced of your earnings. I mean, he absolutely hit it on the nail. Um, there's all kinds of labor movements in the South that never get mentioned in the history books. Um, there was a great deal of poor white solidarity with black people in Appalachia and in other places. So, yeah, there's a whole aspect of Southern history that tends to get obscured. And one of the problems I have with Lillian Smith's writing in this respect is that what she wrote fit neatly into this narrative of Southerners coming in three flavors, which were the enlightened aristocracy and the yeoman farmers and then the brutish poor. And and black people never got considered to be Southerners at all. <laughs> they were black. Um, I mean, it's just a way of thinking about the South that is incredibly simplistic. Right. Well, and not to mention her characterization of black people is just a little bit troubling in Strange Fruit. Well, yeah, there's that. Um she had her limitations as an artist, too. Uh, there were parts of Strange Fruit that I found really evocative and right on the money. Uh, when she writes about 
Southern evangelical religion. She and I are on the same page. I grew up with exactly that kind of religious influence, and I understand in my bones the oppressiveness of it, especially when it's linked to parental expectations. It's it's just suffocating. So there's parts of Strange Fruit that I think work really, really well. The main trouble with Strange Fruit is the black woman character, Noni, who is just kind of a cardboard figure. She doesn't seem to have any real thoughts of her own or any aspirations. She's a Spelman graduate. We never figure out how she got to Spelman or who paid for it. Um in an era when very few black women made it to college. And um, and she doesn't seem to have any ambition other than to be Tracy Dean's lover. And I don't know. It just, it just doesn't work for me. And there were a number of people it just didn't work for. Despite her flaws and despite, I guess, your distaste for her novel, measured distaste, shall we say, <laughs> um, you still wrote a stellar essay about her and you devoted a lot of time to reading about her. You clearly know a lot about her. And it seems like there's a lot of empathy there. So when did that click for you? When did you really connect with her? I don't want to sound whiny or complaining here, but I think that all women writers particularly women of my generation, which is a little older than you, let's say, um, have had the experience of feeling unheard. And I think that resonated with me. Um, I originally started studying her life and her work because I was going to pitch an idea for a biography of her. And as I got further into things... I don't know. I just kind of began to feel like I couldn't do her justice. But I guess I realized at some point, you know, I'm not sure I want to write a book about her, but there's a really good essay in here somewhere. Um, and I think that's what got me started. I didn't even know who I was writing it for. I don't know. Lillian was a really inconvenient person. <laughs> I sort of felt like she was kind of nagging me. <laughs> Yeah, the first sentence is as most, what is it here? Like all truly aggravating people, Lillian Smith refuses to go away. <laughs> she kind of refused to go away for me, too. No um, kidding. Yeah. And the other thing, the most, really one of the most important things that put me onto this was um, Brenda Bynum, who's an Atlanta actress I met in Savannah several years ago. And she did a brief presentation that was part of her one act play about Lillian Smith. And I had heard of Lillian Smith before then, and I had this vague idea that she was some sort of liberal do-gooder, and I didn't really think she was very relevant to today. And Brenda's performance really turned my mind around about that. So what do you think her direct connection is to today? Because there's a number of times in the essay that you allude to that. Can you spell it out? Well, the way she characterizes Southern leadership of the day, if you want to call it leadership, the thing about the South that haunts some of us who love the South is that given a choice between a good way and a bad way, nine times out of ten, the South will take the bad way. Um, there's exceptions to that, but... 
The South has a weakness for hot-headed, narrow-minded folks. They just do. It's a, and I don't really know why that is. I think it kind of comes to rest historically on the idea that um, property is everything in the South, and people in the South used to be property. I don't know. I haven't really flushed that out in my mind too well. But but aside from that, she was on to something by a dealing with this intersection of race and sex that I think we are still working out. We still live in a society in which black men or black teenagers even are automatically seen as a threat. And that's special that's true of all black people, but particularly black men. And so even though the rate of interracial interracial partnerships and marriage is at an all-time high these days, we are still struggling with the psychological debris of generations of viewing black men as threatening figures and as sexually threatening figures in particular. So what do you want her legacy to be today? Having written this essay, having read about her, what do you want people to think of when they think of Lillian Smith? I just want people to take her idea seriously. I think that's all she ever wanted. I'm not sure she should be remembered as a great novelist. I think she should be remembered for her moral compass and the clarity of her vision and her ability to to articulate issues that was really prescient and ahead of her time. I think those are ways in which she would be remembered. And, you know, Strange Fruit, the novel, is probably destined for obscurity, and maybe that's okay. But that was not the only thing she had to say. She had a ton of other stuff to say that she tried to express in novel form and then came to say more directly. And I think she deserves to be taken seriously. For more on Lillian Smith, do check out Tracy Thompson's essay, Southern Cassandra, from our most recent issue. Lillian Smith was too complicated a woman to sum up in a single podcast episode or even a single essay. So we've got a link to a forthcoming documentary, too, called Breaking the Silence and a few other treats in the show notes. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 